You know, I think about often about the Joseph Campbell quote that says, if you can see your path all the way through to the end, you are following someone else's path. Your path only becomes clear moment by moment as each foot hits the ground. And that was me watching my five-year track to partner and realizing one day I woke up, I just thought, this is not my path. What I said to myself was, I hope I get the flu so I don't have to go to work tomorrow. And 18 hours later, I was rushed to the emergency room with the flu. Be careful what you wish for, right? And I told you, strong mind. I'm very willful. So I gave myself the flu. And then I came home and I was down for the count for two weeks. And the only thing in my head, the music in my head was to make a difference, to make a difference, that the work of my hands matters. And that became my purpose, my sort of filter through which I began to look through all, and I have plenty of twists and turns and wrong turns on the way. But the sense of, I am here to make a difference and to make sure that the work of my hands matters. In preparing for this podcast, I listened to some of the interviews you've done with other people. And I wrote down this little phrase that you use somewhere else that plays to exactly what you just said, which is radical self-examination. One of my core values is the truth, the truth. And you can't get to the heart of the matter unless you're really willing to go there for yourself. We are human beings, we are complex beings. We are the pinnacle of grace and enlightenment. And five minutes later, the muck and mire of petty humanity. and everything in between. And I just personally deeply accept that that's the way humans are. And I think in some ways our life's purpose, all of us. Is to mine that, to get to the bottom of it and get closer and closer and closer to understanding the truth of who, who we are, who I am, and then the truth of human nature. Again, all the joys and all the sorrows of that. And so I just, I like the word radical, like not mealy-mouthed. And I like the word self-examination as in, it's almost like you gotta take personal responsibility for getting in control of your own stuff before you can really have a sense of how to help someone else or before you can lead someone else. That's why it's a, I think it's a, an important first principle of leadership is that you are willing and able to get to be on top of your own stuff. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. 
In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. As my regular listeners will know well, I consider it just such a privilege to get to spend precious time with world-leading coaches on this podcast, and today is no exception. My guest is someone who I've been hoping to convince to come on for a very long time. Alyssa Cohn is simply the best startup coach in the business and has worked with C-suite executives at prominent startups like Venmo, Etsy, and Tory Burch as well as Fortune 500 companies like Microsoft, Google, Calvin Klein, and Pfizer. She's the award-winning author of From Startup to Grown-Up, and the host of the podcast of the same name, which provides insights and tools for the journey that founders and all leaders must go through as they scale their leadership. Alyssa was named the top startup coach in the world by none other than Dr. Marshall Goldsmith, who you can hear on episode 36 of The Unlock Moment, and she was ranked globally as the number one global guru for the past three years by Global Gurus Research Organization. She's a member of the Marshall Goldsmith 100 group of coaches, many of whom I've been privileged to speak with on this podcast in recent months. A sought-after speaker, Alyssa was named one of the top 100 leadership speakers by Inc. She's keynoted events for IBM, PwC, Dell, and Citi. She's a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and Inc. And she's been featured as an expert on BBC World News and in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. If all of that wasn't enough, she's an angel investor and a Broadway investor. We've heard some amazing unlock moments from entrepreneurs over the last year on this podcast. I can't wait to hear Alyssa's take on emergent leadership, as well as learning about the unlock moments that shaped her own path in coaching and in life. Alyssa Cohn, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to the unlock moment. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. I really appreciate it. And it's so great to be here. I'm so delighted to be here with you. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So Alyssa, where do we need to start in your story to understand the person you are today? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, you know, I mean, so many things. When you were talking about unlock moment, I was thinking, oh, I have so many different unlock moments. But I think, I, I think maybe I'll just uh, talk about the first one that comes to mind, which is the day I decided to move to New York when I was um, in Boston and I was uh, coming up on a birthday and every year on my birthday, I'm very intense about like, oh, all the things I want to talk about with all my friends. And I was thinking about all these conversations I was having with all my friends and I was running as many important things happened to me while I'm running. And I was running around the reservoir in Boston and I thought, interesting, it was the first time in my life that I thought, huh, 10 years from now, you're going to have the same conversations with the same friends about these topics that relate to your birthday. What do you want to say? And immediately I thought, well, not that I live here. And I was so clear in that moment that I did not belong here in Boston. I belonged in New York. And that was in October. And I moved in February of the following year. That's really interesting. I think birthdays is such a big thing is for unlock moments and generally for coaching actually i meet a lot of people who the beginning of their coaching conversation is yes yeah, so i've just had a birthday or coming up to a birthday and it makes people think particularly a big birthday with a zero on the end it makes people think and i remember i remember coming up to my 30th birthday going when i hit my 40th birthday 
I need to be able to look back and say something about what I've done in the last 10 years, which I didn't feel so much when I was 20, looking forward to 30. There are moments when people suddenly think, I've got to start getting my stuff together and I've got to start living the life I want to live. You know, so that's, it's very interesting that that resonated for you. And what was it about location that mattered? Um, it's, yeah. What was it about location that mattered? I mean, when I was four years old, this might be my true first ever unlock moment. According to my father, when I was four years old, I wanted my own apartment. <laughs> so I don't remember that. However, I think I was always a city girl, right? Who grew up in a small town. And I think that there was a lot there around. So growing up in a small town, quite a rural town, I saw myself. So after business school and after moving to, you know, even the city, Boston, I saw myself as I would express to myself and to sometimes to friends, a Jewish girl from a small town, Jewish girl from a small town. And there was something very small about that, as in like, I am in a bubble and I'm sheltered. And um, if I ever want to kind of fight my way out of this and maybe reach my full potential, I had to shift my identity. And there was definitely something about New York, the big city, the city everyone's scared about. And I realized that I had to get out of the bubble and do something that was going to make me uncomfortable. But there was a sense also of just knowing that I, I, I belonged somewhere else. And I think probably in, in a lot of my life, I kind of thought I belonged somewhere else. And for whatever reason, I mean, maybe not as a surprise, New York is the place because if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And there's so much mythology about what New York has to offer. And I just knew it was a bigger stage for me. So professionally and personally, but also importantly, I knew that I had to unlock something, punch my way out of a certain identity that was keeping me small to have the life of my dreams. And that was all going to be found for me in New York. And I will say, I moved to New York three months later for about 10 months. I was back and forth to Boston, you know, every like three or four days because I still have plenty of clients in Boston. And every time I got to Boston in my comfortable life, in my comfortable condo with my car, my friends, I was like, what are you doing? And then I would come to New York into Penn Station, disgusting Penn Station, gross, anytime. And I realized I can't explain it. This, this is home. This is where I belong. When you tell that story, I'm thinking about a similar conversation I had recently with a biotech CEO, an emergent biotech CEO that I'm currently coaching. And in one of our coaching sessions, I asked this question, which was, where do we start in your story to understand who you are today? Because we were prepping for when you're talking to investors, how do you tell them about you, not your technology, not your business plans? And she said, I didn't know her pretty well at all. She said, when I was seven years old, I was a tomboy, I was a rebel. And as you followed the story through, that was representative of somebody that she is today. And you could see through the things she's achieved and discovered and now turning into business. It all comes back to that same person. So I wrote down here, four-year-old who wants an apartment, but I wrote then four-year-old with big ambition. That's what I wrote. What, 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 what did the apartment represent for you? I mean, who knows? I don't really remember that exactly, but I, I just feel... Um, I've always wanted independence. I've always wanted 
a big life. My friend Judith used to tell me, Alyssa, you're someone who takes a big bite out of life. And there was something about taking a big bite out of life in the big apple. And I think the idea of independence and then also, I want to say glamour, you know, something very glamorous about New York. And there's something very glamorous about moving to the big city and moving to like, you know, a high rise apartment with a doorman and a concierge and all this stuff that I just didn't have growing up. Again, I'm a little girl from a small town. So all these trappings of uh, the city in a certain kind of way, I think showed success. I think they showed, your point about ambition, ambition. They helped me feel more at home and, and, and at home in my drive and in my ambition. And so I think it's all these little pieces that, that cluster together about why that was significant for me. And what was the reality when you got to New York? Did it, were the streets paved with gold? <laughs> well, the streets weren't paved with gold, obviously. And let me tell you something. If you are uh, someone who easily gets caught up in your work, i.e. could become a workaholic, then come to New York because that'll bring it out of you. If you're somebody who's easily caught up in ambition and drive, come to New York because that will bring it out, out of you. And if you uh, stay in New York, you will turn, you know, it'll shape you. It'll shape you. But I will say when I came to New York, it just felt like a fit. There's nothing else to say. You know, um, sometimes... I'm, I'm a very determined person, and if something doesn't work for me, for better and for worse, I will sometimes hammer away at something until it works. But with New York, it was never that way. I, um, I got invited by a person who I barely knew to stay in her apartment when I was apartment shopping, when I told her I was going to move to New York. And in December, she offered that I could stay in her place. And there was a big snowstorm, and I couldn't leave the night I was supposed to leave. And there was a big Christmas party at this building that she, that I was at. And I went to the Christmas party and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this is where I need to be. <laughs> like, it was just so amazing. It was so um, special and well done and everything. And I moved out. So ultimately I moved into that building. It was just so clear. Like um, I belong, not just in New York, I belong in this building. And I moved into that building. And that was easy. And I met a whole bunch of people immediately. One thing about New York, some places are hard to, to sort of break into. New York is not hard to break into. Everyone is transient. If you have the drive and the ambition and you're willing to put yourself out there and even like be uncomfortable, then you will meet people. They will introduce you to people. It's a very fluid environment in that perspective. And so it suited me. It just suited me in my, my professional life and my personal life and kind of the way I was. So it's not like I didn't stop. I, I didn't stop striving because I'm a striver, but my striving was met in New York. It's like, you know, you, it, it met me where I was. The word that you said several times is belonging. And that really resonates. You, it's slightly different from arriving. So richer and deeper than that. And I think in coaching, often you're talking with people about them finding that place where they feel connected, where they feel belonging, where they feel surrounded by the right people and all of that. How did that start to kind of manifest through the work that you were doing and the path that you took through the type of work you were doing over, you know, over time? Well, um, I mean, I'm not sure if it's a, you know, every little step we take becomes like a plank in our platform and sort of like a, another part of the tapestry that is our story. And so this was just another element of the story. So I met a whole bunch of people in New York and they introduced me to clients. Also, 
my, you mentioned my dear, dear friend and dear, dear mentor, Marshall Goldsmith. He was moving to New York during that period and he introduced me to a million people. And um, I think like what it gave me was a sense of confidence, like, okay, this is going to work out for me. And now I'm going to see what there is to, um, is to reap here. And, and your point about belonging and location, those are, that's also true. There's also a question of identity. So again, back to, you know, I'm a little girl from a, from a small town, this idea that that's my identity. Well, now that's not true. I'm someone who's living in the big apple. I'm taking a big bite of life out of the big apple and being able to be conscious of that and being able, frankly, to role model that it was not easy. It did not just happen. It was a labor of love, but it was a labor. And so I had to, for example, not be like, not be in the same place more than three nights for, for 10 months. That's a really, that's a big labor. Um, get out, you know, get out of your comfort zone and go out and meet people, make an effort to go meet people. All those things took a lot of energy and they required an ability to kind of shift your identity and to be able to be uncomfortable. And I think I, as a coach, am, am much more successful as a coach in helping my clients achieve their goals and get done what they want to go do, do because I've trod the path ahead of them. If I say you've got to get out of your comfort zone, I've got out of my comfort zone thousands of times. If I say you've got to really do the inner work to look at your identity and see what, what's driving you and then what's preventing you, that's because I've a thousand times delved into my own inner life to understand what are the accelerators and what are the, the blockers. And so I think all these experiences that I was able to take on and, and create a shift in identity has contributed just to my compassion as a coach, to my ability to offer techniques and tools. And then also just ultimately my relatedness. I can relate to people about what, what's going on with them. And I think something that I hear that's really coming through strongly in what you say is this idea of discomfort. I've, I've talked to another podcast, you know, my background as a professional dancer about being off balance and intentionally putting yourself off balance. Because if you're not off balance as a dancer, you don't move. And that's kind of a key, key idea of mine. Um, in being uh, in that place where it's uncomfortable, what I often find with people when they, when they talk about their unlocked moments, when they really get to the stuff that is the, the true, deep, vulnerable, difficult stuff, that gives them a different lens on purpose than where they go to if you say, what do you think your values are? Well, I think my values are family and honesty and something. You know, it's not very deep. It might be true, but it's not very deep. What's very interesting for me is when you hear people and they start to go, I don't have all the answers to that, actually. I, I was deeply uncomfortable at that moment, but it shaped me or changed me or made me think differently, went, went to a different kind of place. For you, when you think about your emergent sense of purpose over that period of time, what, what do you think about? That actually is more about another unlock moment for me, which is I was at PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is a fantastic firm, but ultimately not the right place for me. And I woke up and I was on this fast track to partner program and I was all set. And, you know, I think about often about the Joseph Campbell quote that says, if you can see your path all the way through to the end, you are following someone else's path. Your path only becomes clear moment by moment as each foot hits the ground. And that was me watching my five-year track to partner and realizing one day I woke up, I just thought, this is not my path. 
And I told, I, I, what I said to myself was, I hope I get the flu so I don't have to go to work tomorrow. And 18 hours later, I was rushed to the emergency room with the flu. And, you know, so be careful what you wish for, right? And I told you, strong mind. I'm very willful. So I gave myself the flu. And then I came home and I was down for the count for two, for two weeks. And the only thing in my head, the music in my head was to make a difference, to make a difference, that the work of my hands matters. And that became my purpose, my sort of filter through which I began to look through all, and I have plenty of twists and turns and wrong, and wrong turns on the way, but the sense of, I am here to make a difference and to make sure that the work of my hands matters. And so, you know, I'm constantly thinking of that purpose and coming back to that purpose when I get lost in my own, you know, stuff. But I think that that has continued to kind of get refined and honed in terms of what does that really mean? And I think for startup founders, I think there are some startup founders that get a spreadsheet of the most successful businesses and then say, can I reproduce that in my country? And, and it's not so purpose-driven, but so many startup founders, of course, deeply purpose-driven and they form an initial group of people that maybe they know, maybe connect with them on that purpose. And when they're sitting around their kitchen table, mixing a smoothie or building a satellite or whatever it is that they're doing, purpose is not so difficult at that time. But, but as the businesses start to grow, and not everybody's been personally hired by them, and they're not talking to everybody in the team all the time. How, how do founders hold on to that deep, connected sense of purpose in their businesses, do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's, an, of course, a normal stage that you have to recognize in startup land and startup world. So startup founders, to your point, there's an idea. And most of them are very mission-driven or purpose-driven, like this thing, this thing should exist and they do hire from their circle of trust, you know, younger people who they went to school with or even older second, third time entrepreneurs who they've worked with in the past. So that is normal. And then you have to move outside from your circle of trust to your the circle of competence, circle of expertise, hiring people who are competent in the things that you need. And I think that there's two things to say about that that are essential. Number one, you have to get it clear in your own mind and repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it to everybody all the time and help people link from what they're doing to that central purpose. And the second has to be that you, you must tell your leaders and get your leaders to narrate that as, as, as the company grows to cascade that down. Because People don't just hear it from you. They hear it from their leaders. And if you say it, but their leaders and managers don't act it, then you have a disconnect. And that's what I also call as unintended toxic cultures. Unintended toxic cultures is anytime there is a disconnect between what you say is important to you and what actually people are seeing inside of the company. And that plays to something else that I know you, you said before around the idea that leadership is an unnatural act. And, and that idea that you know, when you're all sitting around the kitchen table together, it's not really leadership. It's just a group of people that are deeply connected, having conversation about stuff. But as, as, as a business forms and people start to have to do formal things that make it into an effective team and an effective operation, turns into leadership. So when you say leadership is an unnatural act, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean, so many things. But, but what comes to mind is I remember talking to a CEO who was have tr having trouble giving feedback and having direct conversations with his team. And it was very noticeable what, how much trouble he was having. It was not like it was hidden. And, and, and he even admitted 
that yes, I need to do this more often. I need to do this more regularly and, and more um, strategically and purposefully. Okay. So we finally get into what's really going on here. And he thought about it and I gave him a lot of space to think about it. And I kept asking him questions and he finally just said very quietly, I just don't think that I should be telling other adults what to do. Well, I understand that because you're dealing with other human beings and maybe your friends and you don't go around giving your friends feedback, but that's not what this is. What this is, is there's a structure, there's a context here. And the structure and the construct here is that you're the boss, you're the founder, you're the leader, you're the CEO. And not only is it your job to tell them what to do at times and also to redirect them at times, but in fact, they're looking to you for that. And if you think about it, that is for everybody. You know, a lot of people are concerned and nervous about public speaking. And when you're the CEO, you very often have to get up in front of that group or other groups and do public speaking. That requires getting out of your comfort zone because it's not natural for you. Or you might be a data person, like just the facts. Okay, great. People resonate with stories. So it's unnatural for you to tell stories and you need to learn how to do that. I think of anything that you ha that has to be learned behavior as an unnatural act. And especially when it comes to leadership, it's like you sort of think you can just relax at some point, but, but the workplace when you're the founder and the CEO is the last place where you can relax because you're always on display. And I want to take a little sidestep into a beautiful little coaching question you threw in in the middle of that. And I know lots of people that listen to this podcast are coaches or are interested in in understanding more about how coaching really works. And there's that super powerful question, what's really going on here, which is a question that has no content or context, but it is inviting the person you're talking to to go to a different place from the one that they currently in inhabit. When you ask that question of leaders that you work with, what what changes for them when they really start to think about what is going on here? So first of all, one of my values, and you could talk about values, are like, like you said, like integrity and da, 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 like, what does that really mean? But one of my values that I just inhabit is the truth, like the truth. And I often call it the unpretty truth. Like what we really is, what we really mean, what we really think, what's really going on. So you know, I can get to plenty of things just by saying, oh, interesting, why'd you do that? Or what's, you know, what's that about? But when they are keeping the truth from themselves, you know, it just takes a minute because they're in willful self-denial or, or, or unconscious self-denial. And it takes a minute to unravel through that. And so for me, it's a series of just questions like, as in, oh, why, like, I'll give you an example. One of my, um, uh, the CEOs I worked with a, a few years ago, he canceled the executive team meeting. I don't just mean on this Monday. I mean, on like, he just canceled it. We're not having it on Mondays anymore. We're just canceling that meeting. And I found out and I said, huh, why'd you cancel the executive team meeting? He said, well, we're just too busy. We don't have time. I said, huh, <laughs> you don't have time to sync up your team together and make sure everyone's on the same page. And, you know, you sort of give them direction and hear what's going on. He said, no, well, some people were missing the meeting and the meeting wasn't well-structured. Who's in charge of that meeting? You're in charge of that meeting. You can always change that meeting. What's really going on here? And he was quiet for a minute. And what he said was the name of his CTO. I won't say the name of his CTO, but he said, the CTO, I can't stand him. And I can't stand being in the same room with him. 
And rather than address it, he didn't say this, but like clearly rather than address it, he just canceled the meeting and was able to sort of avoid being in the same room with him. So the what's really going on here, I think just creates a shift. Again, it's a space, an invitation and a shift to just say the truth and to say the unpretty truth. Because the unpretty truth in this case was number one, I can't stand him. Number two, I can't stand to be in the same room with him. And number three, I am not addressing it. Now that is important. Like that's powerful. Like, wow. All right. Now we have something to do here. People that have listened for a long time will know that I have an obsession with words. And in preparing for this podcast, I listened to some of the interviews you've done with other people. And I wrote down this little phrase that you use somewhere else that plays to exactly what you just said, which is radical self-examination. And I thought, oh, what a wonderful way to express what it feels like to think these thoughts when challenged by a person like you. So about radical self-examination. Um, back to, you know, for me, my, one of my core values is the truth, the truth. And you can't get to the heart of the matter unless you're really willing to go there for yourself. And so, you know, we are human beings. We are complex beings. We are the pinnacle of grace and enlightenment. And five minutes later, the muck and mire of petty humanity and everything in between. And I just personally deeply accept that that's the way humans are. And I think in some ways our life's purpose, all of us, is to mine that, to get to the bottom of it and get closer and closer and closer to understanding the truth of who, who we are, who I am, and then the truth of human nature. Again, all the joys and all the sorrows of that. And so I just, I like the word radical, like not mealy-mouthed. And I like the word self-examination as in you need to it's almost like you got to take personal responsibility for getting in control of your own stuff before you can really have a sense of how to help someone else or how you before you can lead someone else. That's why it's a, I think it's a, an important first principle of leadership is that you are willing and able to get to be on top of your own stuff. Leadership in big companies, leadership in startups. In big companies, you don't get to be a leader unless you tick all the boxes of all the different things that, broadly speaking, you need to do. And even then, they still have imposter syndrome. In the startup, often you're a leader because you're an inventor or you're a scientist or you're an engineer or something, you know, you're not there because you're necessary at all an expert in finance or operating models or people or what all those different elements, distribution, logistics. Um, imposter syndrome for startup and scale up leaders, something they trip up with all the time. I bet. Well, first of all, I have, I have a few things to say. First of all, Yes, you don't get to be a formal leader in large companies for quite a long time until you kind of move through the, the stages and they give you this training and education. And also you learn by doing and you learn by watching. But the truth is we're all leaders in our own lives. We're all leaders in our own lives. And the first person you leave, lead every day is the one who wakes up in your pajamas. And I think it's better if you act like that, you know, and that you can have a profound influence on people around you no matter where you are hierarchically in the organization. So that's one thing. The second thing is uh, with startups in particular, the entry level position for a founder is leader, right? You're the boss, you're the boss of one, and then you're the boss of three and then five and then eight. And then, you know, God help you 10,000, right? <laughs> but it starts, 
with you being like, I've never done this before. And then every day, actually, one of the, my, um, my clients once said to me, it's like, I'm a rookie every day. Cause it's like, I've never done this every day. It's so true. So no wonder you have imposter syndrome, right? You've never done this before. In fact, in my book from startup to grown up, I interviewed Susie Batiste, who's one of the top self-made richest women in the U S according to Forbes. And she created this product called Poopery, which helps you in the bathroom uh, eradicate bad smelling things. Poopery, it's called. So Susie Batiste said, what do you mean imposter syndrome? I am an imposter, right? I've never done this before and everyone has to understand that. Now, at the same time, I think there's a difference between recognizing, huh, I've never done this before. And this feeling of they're going to, imposter syndrome is around, they're going to find me out as a fraud. They're going to recognize that you should be taken out, that you've just been lucky. Everything you've accomplished in your life is through luck and your luck is about to run out. Now that is anxiety producing. That's not just like, huh, I'm a rookie or I've never done this before. There's like this, uh, this feeling of uh, they're going to find me out. And it's very damaging because it's, first of all, it's draining. Second of all, it prevents you from hiring people who are better than you and smarter than you because you're afraid of being, you know, shown up by them because they're going to take you at any minute. It prevents you from being honest with yourself and others. And then, by the way, hiding all that stuff is also extremely draining. And then ultimately it prevents you from asking good questions and learning at the rapid pace that you need to learn as a startup founder. So as the world's number one startup coach, when should a startup CEO think about getting a coach? And how do they make a case when they're trying to spend as little money as possible on unnecessary things. How, how does that journey go for, for new coaches? Yeah, well, I think that uh, for me, I will say that people come to me typically when there is a crisis, whatever, one way or the other, there's a crisis. Now, sometimes, let's say 20% of the time, a founder, a startup CEO will come to me and say, I'm a first-time CEO. I don't know what I don't know. And I recognize that it would be helpful for me to, you know, work with a coach who's kind of been there and done that been and seen it all. That's great. Most CEOs come in like a crisis. Like, for example, one of my clients came to me after his team had mutinied. They, they took it. We called this the ice coffee intervention. They took him to this coffee shop, this, this old guard, uh, you know, employees, and they said, everyone's upset, morale is terrible, everyone hates you, and they're all going to quit. So that got his attention. And, uh, you know, there are so many things that are wrong about that as, as the intervention. But nonetheless, it got his attention. And he came to me recognizing, I think there's a few things that are that are not working here that I'm getting wrong, obviously. And so, you know, I think any CEO who wants to build self-awareness and be the best that he or she can be. And also I come back to scale as fast as you need to, to run a successful company should be looking to find a coach. I recognize that money is tight early days. And what I do regularly is I, you know, I'll have an intentional coaching conversation with somebody just to see if we're even a fit. And we'll talk about a situation and that person will be able to instantly take action on something they've been dealing with and putting off for months or even years. That kind of thing reinforced over and over again 
pays for itself with multiples. It's very interesting that in coaching, there's a lot of coaches that resist the idea of, of and I think this is probably a right thing to, you know, it's not, not about the coach promising results, but I've spoken to too many people who said, I had 12 sessions of coaching, I didn't get a lot out of it. And, and I say back to them, if by the end of our first session, or possibly second, but mainly first session, you're not kind of clear that this, there's something in this, not that you've necessarily solved everything, but it, when it works right, it works quickly in coaching. It's, it's quickly evident that it's, that it's effective. Do you ever need to be tough as a coach with a startup founder? When's it helpful for coaching to be more challenging? Um, that is, I think, a very interesting question that I'm constantly asking myself. So I call myself a tough love coach, right? Just being honest about it. So all of my clients know how much I love them and I'm on their side, 100%. And I'm a very good listener and empathizer and compassion giver because they have no one else to talk to. And I really understand that. And if we're having the same conversation over and over and over again, I really have to ask the question, like what I call call the question, like what is in the way of you taking the step rather than just keep us talking about it? Like one of my clients knows he needs to be more directive and knows he needs to, needs to give more feedback. So we're constantly talking about being more directive and giving more feedback. And, you know, finally, just a few weeks ago, we were in an offsite and his team said, you know, you need to be more directive and give us more feedback. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> I was like, oh, I know, I should do that. And I said, no, what, what is going to prevent us from having the same conversation at the reunion of this offsite? And I can be pretty serious about it, as in, you know, this needs to change. Now, at the end of the day, we both know that people are not going to change unless they're ready and willing and able to change. However, if you don't push them, I think that that readiness comes later. And I really believe that it's incumbent upon me as a coach to help my clients, especially as a startup coach, help my clients make progress as quickly as possible, because that is the pace of business. I'm fascinated by your book and podcast title, From Startup to Grown Up. And I think this really plays to, to this. Why did you call it From Startup to Grown Up? Because that's what the journey is, right? That's the journey that all leaders have to go through and certainly startup founders have to go through, which has to do with what does it take to turn a little acorn of an idea of a, and of a person and turn it into a thriving organization and turn you into the leader of a thrive, thriving organization. Also, some people have a funny connotation of the word grown up, like, oh, I'll never grow up. I got news for you. You're, you're grown up, okay? You're not a kid anymore. Now you can be playful and you can be responsible if that's what you want. And you can, but startup founders, when they are successful and they have 50 people and 500 people and 10,000 people working for them, they're responsible for people's lives, right? People are going to buy a house. They're going to get married. They're going to have kids based on their sort of financial stability and their identity around being part of this company. You can't just wing it. You got to grow up. That's what I think. And that's why I called my book that. And what's, what's the takeaway that you really want the people that have read it and properly ingested it to get coming out of reading from startups growing up? Well, the takeaway is that you need to build self-awareness. You need to learn the specific management tools that are going to you know, allow you to be a good leader. And you need to mind the business. So some people are like, oh, it's up and to the right. 
but how up and how to the right and as compared to what should it have been. And so you can't ignore all these things and expect it all to just handle itself. And you need to rapidly learn the skills and tools that you need to learn, even the ones that are going to be hard for you, especially the ones that are going to be hard for you, that are going to allow you to build what you need to build. When you're working with all these people on their amazing purpose-driven businesses, do you ever get the bug to go back into it yourself? Oh, to go back into business? Um, I would, I sometimes, so the answer is not really because I really love what I do, but sometimes, uh, I sort of think how fun it is to be part of a team that hangs out every day together and gets their work done every day together and is building amazing things every day together. And I don't have that, right? I'm sort of like, I come in and I come out and I come in and we're working together on things, but I'm not in the trenches the way they are. And I miss being part of that team sometimes. But you are, you, you're. You're a part of a team in a different way now. Yeah, in a different way, but not in the day-to-day operational way. And do you work with people over a long period of time or is it, is it quite, uh, quite focused the way you do? Um, both. I sometimes work with, you know, I have uh, clients I've worked with for five, six, seven years. I have clients I'm still in touch with, you know, for 10, 15, 20 years. But sometimes I just work with someone for a year or two. So it just depends. When you look back to early in your coaching career, Is there anything that you wish you'd known then that you know now that would have shaped your journey differently? Every single thing. Every single thing. I think one thing I've learned as a coach is to follow my curiosity. Like when someone says something and something pops in my head, I used to think that, I don't know why I would say that, but now I just know I'm going to say that. And it usually has a resonance. Um, Like for example, somebody will be talking to me in a very even toned voice and We'll be, you know, having, we're having, joking around or whatever. And I'll say like, I feel anxious. I'm wondering why I feel anxious. And they will say, I'm feeling really anxious. You know, and I wasn't really coming across. It just, you know, something that I kind of felt on the inside, like what's really going on. I think there's that. I think that, um, you know, in my journey of 22 years as a coach, I've overcome my own imposter syndrome, built a lot of confidence, and that helps me be more successful with my clients. I certainly wish that I had you know, shared my ideas and written a book sooner, Um, you know, those kinds of things. But I think you learn every day as a coach, you learn every day as a coach. And so every day I become a better coach. I love it. How can people find out more about you and the work you do? Oh, well, thank you for asking. You can come to my website, alissacohn.com, A-L-I-S-A-C-O-H-N.com forward slash scripts. And you can download five scripts to help you navigate delicate conversations, difficult conversations, and one to make your life better. So that's alyssacone.com forward slash scripts. And you can get my book, of course, on Amazon, or you can go to alyssacone.com forward slash startup. Find my podcast, alyssacone.com forward slash podcast. And say hi to me on LinkedIn or on Twitter or Instagram. Fantastic. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For world-leading startup coach and renowned speaker Alyssa Cohn, it was knowing that the future was simply not here that took her to New York and shaped her career, enabling senior startup leaders to change the world. And if you enjoyed our conversation, please do go and order a copy of her book from Startup to Grown Up, Grow Your Leadership to Grow Your Business at Amazon, your favorite bookstores, and find her podcast of the same name on all major podcast platforms. Alyssa, it's been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Unlock Moment. Thank you so much for having me. It was such such a great to spend time. 
This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.